Hi, this is Karen Allen from Animal House and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're listening to The Claws Corner. Welcome to the latest episode of The Claws Corner. I continue my conversation with actor, director, playwright, acting teacher and musician Thomas G. Waits. His latest movie, Target, which he wrote and directed, is now available on Amazon Prime. And I have to say, I've seen it several times so far, and wow, what a roller coaster ride. What a great, great movie. I highly recommend it to all my viewers. Go out right after this interview is over and buy it immediately. You will not be disappointed. So with that being said, Thank please you. welcome once again to the Claus Corner, Thomas G. Waits. Thomas, how are you? I'm beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel great. Yeah. Thank you very, very much for once again coming back to the show because we have so much to talk about. And when we last left off, um, you said, Rich, you got to check out the movie Target. It was just released. And I watched it that night. I bought it, watched it again, loved it even better the second time. I have to say, this is sort of like your Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. I mean, it's great. It's got very well acted. Very well shot. I love all the, I don't know, how do you do that with the drones? Is that how you film that? Yeah. 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 We use drones. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just such a, like, as I mentioned in the intro, a roller coaster ride. I mean, it's funny. All the double entendres that are yeah. in the movie. But also, it tackles some serious issues like foster care. So, I mean, this movie has everything. Yeah, it does tackle foster care, doesn't it? And it also deals with the kind of iconoclastic uh, interpretation of religion and religious views, mm -hmm. which is a very, I mean, as if um, compersion, sexual compersion wasn't uh, a deep enough subject. Compersion is where you enjoy watching your lover be made love to by someone else. Mm -hmm. That's what compersion means. And it's a very, I've never seen a film that, covered that subject i mean i guess they do it in porn i don't know i don't really watch porn but um i thought you know i'm gonna i'm gonna do a movie about something that's never been done before so that's why i chose that subject and i just felt like um i as i got deeper into it i wanted to explore these themes like the bosch painting and what it represents and who he was and some of my friends came back to me and said, you know, I can't because they're famous. I can't write a public review because I'm Catholic and I was raised Catholic mm -hmm. and uh, a very strict Catholic in point of fact. My oldest brother was a priest. My oldest sister was a nun. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. And uh, but it's not meant to be. Um, anti-religious in any way, shape or form. Uh, it just, I want to tear down preconceptions of what religion is about and get people to look at things differently if possible. And in a certain way, the painting is kind of watching everybody, you know, the way I have the camera zoom in on it. And you yeah. kind of, it's almost as if the, the, the painting is watching the story unfold. For people who haven't seen the movie yet, the painting is entitled Hell. 
Is that correct? By Hieronymus Bosch. Yes. And so the story that um, the, the actor's name is Nick Gregory, the story that he tells Chip, the character Chip Phillips Stoddard, is that a true story of who Bosch was and how the painting? Yeah, is? Bosch was uh, part of a group of, of these fanatical Dutchmen, um, I believe around the 14th century, 15th century. And he was a great painter. He didn't do that many paintings, but they were exceedingly uh, zealot, zealous uh, with regard to the Blessed Virgin. Now, if you don't know anything about the Catholic religion, it's, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the Trinity, but the Blessed Virgin allegedly gave birth to Jesus without, um, it was an immaculate conception. She had, she didn't have, uh, she didn't go through the normal things that people go through to conceive and so therefore it was an immaculate conception an angel angel gabriel i believe came down and said you now are going to have god's child so they you know different sects of religions they take themes some of them you know really focus on jesus some of them really focus on god the father some of them focus on the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostalist movement, for example, and some really get uh, enamored by the Blessed Virgin. And I personally have always been enamored by that. Um, let's call it a mythological icon. Mm -hmm. um, let's, her, let's call her that because that's what she represented to me as a little boy. And you know, as a boy, we had to say the rosary constantly, you know, much like Jews have to learn their prayers during different times of the year and so forth. We said the rosary, our whole family, big, large Irish Catholic family. And so anytime I ever have gotten into a jam in life, you know, I immediately found myself going, how Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with it. You know, it just comes right out. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, toy with that a little bit and make it sort of i guess almost a sacrilegious reference um i don't want to give away too much about the, the film but i wanted to deal with religion as it perceives sex and sexuality because we know you know the catholic church has very rigid uh restrictions with regard to that and now our entire country you know with taking away um roe v wade mm -hmm which in my view is stripping women of their rights. It's their body. Let them decide. I'm um, with you on that one. Yeah, I really feel very strongly. And, you know, people say you're a liberal. Well, let me tell you something. Without liberals, women wouldn't have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Women wouldn't have the right to leave the country on a plane. They wouldn't have the right to own a piece of property. They wouldn't have a lot of rights that they just take for granted. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I feel the nationalist, you know, MAGA right is trying to strip women of their and and how uh, an educated, conscientious woman could endorse, you know, this revert to the 1920. When was I mean, women didn't get the right to vote till 1918, right? 
Yeah, somewhere around there, somewhere around that time. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent in everything you just said. And I've had this conversation with plenty of other people. And I said, how can anybody say, yeah, I want to go back to that. Like, let's yeah. make America great again. What do you mean make America great again? To, for a lot of people, America wasn't too, wasn't that great. Yeah, America has has got a lot of blood on her. Yes. We've, we, we've done a lot of uh, bad karma. Yeah. You know, let's start with um, the American Indian, mm -hmm. the indigenous American Indians. Well, the, every contract, every agreement we made with them was abrogated. Then let, let's go to the blacks. This country was built on the backs of the black man. Mm -hmm. And we hosed him down. We hung him. We had public lynchings. We did okay we freed the slaves wow that's really big of us and then it took them a hundred years to get the rights to be citizens and eat at the same counter as you and i and and i i i really admire you know the the celebrities that came out in the 1960s bob dylan marlon brando william faulkner just to name a few people who jeopardized their careers to stand up for the rights of the black man. In fact, Marlon Brando turned down a very big movie deal just so he could spend a year working on uh, civil rights and donating, I believe it was 25% of his annual income to the cause of civil rights. And still, you know, people want to make a big thing about, you know, the color of your skin and I know. You know, yeah, yeah, sure, we have problems. We have problems with drugs in the cities and the countries. We have problems with it. Every, every race, creed, and color has problems with addiction. It, it's uh, not fair to lump that, lump people together like that. You know, every human being has a right to live a free life and enjoy all the possibilities that life has to offer and i am very adamant about that and uh, so i poke at these themes i poke at these themes of you know what how does sex affect the mind the the power of sex on the mind was of great interest to me and i'm glad that you mentioned the acting because i tried to create an atmosphere where they were really relaxed you know mm -hmm. um inclusivity making everyone feel as if they were part of it and therefore when an actor is relaxed the first thing you learn in acting school is you've got to relax mate you've got to be you know relaxed in order to allow yourself to get in touch with your feelings and so that was my top priority was to create an atmosphere and from having been you know in so many films and on stage and having my own acting studio, I know how to do that. I know how to command it and control a set. And, um, and so I was glad that the acting came off as well as it did because they were relaxed. They were having fun. If they're having fun, the audience is going to have a blast, you yeah. know? But I could definitely tell they were having a great time making this movie. It was just, it just, some showed on the screen as i was watching it i could tell that they were just loving almost it. palpable yeah and i and i love how you did play um i forgot what nick 
Nick Gregory's character's name was. What's his name in the movie? His name's Nick Gates. Nick Gates. Okay, so when, when Nick says, come on, what's the, you know, the marriage, is, it's been thousands of years, not every marriage, and she was more of the Christian one who was conflicted. So I like how you played one off the other. It's like, you know what? I always, when, like I said, I love the lines you have. You have so many great jokes in there. It's like, you know, whenever I'm, Whenever I'm thinking about doing this, I'm thinking of my mother. Also, nice. Don't you mention my mother's weight? And I'm just starting laughing. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I, I, that that was a spur of the moment. Don't you dare mention her weight. And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah. But it, it just goes to show you the family dynamics. There are many things that are yeah. involved, and I just imagine that this thin, beautiful, lovely model Jamie had an obese mother she doesn't yeah but i just thought what you know what a great you know dynamic that that could create uh, in in a marriage how you know we marry our in-laws as well as yeah. our spouse yeah but the reason i brought that scene up was because that was a scene where you showed the different um beliefs were one the opposing the, points of view yeah and i and i love that but then i said you inject some humor into it and embrace the it makes him embrace the levity so i just you, it was such a very very well written very well acted movie and i again i'm going to say it again buy this movie immediately after this interview is over because i am looking forward to seeing what you have next because i, I just and you even make i'm, I'm not going to give too much away because i want people to see it but just you know little teasers you even made the burglary scene funny. I laughed out loud. And I'm not going to say, I'm sure you know why I laughed out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet it was, you know, I stole from John Carpenter. You know, I'm like, you have to make this a, a John Carpenter tension building scene, which I feel I did. But then it was funny as hell. You know, yeah, as yeah. You, I don't want to give it away, but it, it is hysterical. And uh and it was great, you know, um, and, and I, I said that to John the other day when I was talking to him and he's like, steal, I did. <laughs> we all do. He goes, and they probably stole it from somebody else. So yeah, it was great. Oh, yeah. there, there, I forgot where it was. There was, I was watching a movie and they said, nothing's really original anymore. Everybody borrows from somebody else. They just take something and then make it their own. And that's exactly what you did. And I love, I love your style and I love John Carpenter style. Did John have a chance to watch the movie yet? Oh yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, you know, John mentored me during this process. At least I consider it mentoring me because, you know, when you when you're working on this kind of a mini budget, I guess is what you call it. Um, we had one big 4K light, and it kept going out. And you know, movie is light. Mm -hmm. So when there's no light, you can't shoot. So I'd be standing on the roof but not call John. I'd be like, John, I'm gonna jump off. I don't know what what he's like, just calm down, take a walk, take a breath, relax. Now tell me what's going on. And he would take his time and really he really helped me out. And then in the editing room. A great editor, by the way, Jordan Santor. What a fantastic job. The amount that I could pay this kid and the amount of work that he did for me, you know, it was it was a it was a blessing, really. He both he and Dan McBride, the colorist, they deserved, you know, 
50 times and would have gotten 50 times what they were paid to do this in the real world. But yet they had the same commitment uh, to me that they would have as if they were getting $10,000 a week or whatever. But the, the I would have questions in the editing room and I'd say, John, this is the shot and this is the problem I'm having. And he would go, well, you got to stick with your instinct. What's, what's the shot? What's the composition of the shot? What's the scene about? And I said, well, the scene's about the guy, the young guy. He's got to be the same. He goes, well, you got to keep him in the center of the frame or mm -hmm. whatever the question might have been. Yeah. And it, so as soon as it, we had a final cut, I FedExed it to him. <laughs> and the next morning, as God is my witness, he watched that thing and sent me an email, and I'll quote it to you verbatim. Dear Tommy, I watched your movie. I liked it. It was very funny. Boy, you sure got a lot of production value out of that for the money you spent. Do you need an agent or somebody to help you sell it? Wow. Love, John. Wow. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's, I'm going to print that out and frame that, you know, yeah. uh, that, that was really, um, you know, very motivating, too, uh, because it makes you realize, like, a master, he's a master director, not just a, I mean, that movie Starman is one of my favorite films of all time. Mm -hmm. He can direct any kind of movie he wants, uh, but to have someone of that status confer approval upon you yeah, sure. It means a great deal. It meant a great deal. It gave me a lot of confidence. And um, I'm very grateful that he gave me that job and the thing. I'm very grateful that I still have a relationship with him um, after all these years. And, you know, I almost blew that relationship, too. I don't know if I told you the story about <laughs> David Quentin and I were on set. And uh, John had cut one of our scenes and we were mic'd with a lavalier mic. And we're like, fuck that fucking guy. I can't believe he fucking cut that scene. What a fucking ass. How could he do that? And we're going on. And on. <laughs> no, I did not hear this story. This is great. <laughs> and John sticks his head around the corner and he goes, hey, you guys, I just heard every word you said. <laughs> Uh, oh man thank, thank god he has a good sense of humor and he doesn't take things too personally <laughs> he's a sensitive man though and oh. it, it, it it hurt his feelings and it took me oh. a long time uh, to and then David Clinton came up with the, the best I mean the best excuse in the world he's like John come on every movie has to have a little mutiny on <laughs> Oh man, that that's funny. Well, I'm glad that you, you you know you made made amends with Walter Hill. You made amends with John Carpenter, and uh, yep. you still talk to John Carpenter. And what I like about John Carpenter too, just like you, he does the music for his movies, and I love his music. I love your music too. I want to get into that, but when I just very recently I went on YouTube and I was watching a concert with John and his son Cody, and they were touring and. It was so great. And in the background, they had the movie scenes from The Thing, Prince of Darkness. Yeah. 
um, all the in the mouth of and madness. John, and John's got his sunglasses on. Oh yeah, yeah, rock star. <laughs> exactly. So did he? Um, I know that you write the music for you and Tony Daniels. Um, he he played Frankie in the movie. He sang. Um, was what song was it? Ride, ride, ride. It ride. was a great song in the movie. Like the the music. Sometimes it's it's funny. I'll hear a song in a movie and I'll say, "Oh, it's great with the movie," and I will listen to it off, you know, on my on its own, and doesn't really have the same effect. Your music I listen to after to just as good a standalone without the movie. But it, with the movie, it's perfect. Like you said, left ride or I, I had the music up on probably like forty, just jamming that song. It's wow! Just, and uh, I, I love all the. So, did you write all the songs for that movie? Yeah, what all of them except for the first one. Yep. The very first song, the wedding song, was written by an old friend of mine for my wedding back in 1987, and uh, I called him up and said, "Listen, can I use your song?" And he said, okay. And Tony rearranged it a bit. It's not exactly exactly how he wrote it, but yeah. you know, Tony puts his touch on everything because he's a master, you know, musician. He can, I mean, it sounds like strings, you got you got horns, whatever you, this guy can do it all, you know. And uh he was a great he was of great service to the film. And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to doing my next picture with him. Yeah. Did John I mean, give part, you any advice he, for that? What? No, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say, did John give you any advice for the music for the film? No, no, he didn't say anything about the music either okay. way. Okay. I, I, I told him that I was doing the music and I said, I have to, I can't afford a composer. And he goes, me too. <laughs> You know, that that's how I started. In the beginning, I had to do it out of necessity. I couldn't afford a composer. I had to do it myself. And and he's good with the synthesizer, John. Yeah. So uh, I'm more of an acoustic, acoustic guitar player. And I play a little bit of piano. But, uh, but I am a songwriter, uh, as evidenced by the film. And I'm quite proud of the music. And to have, you know, one of my investors say, Listen, you've got to sell the soundtrack to this thing. So we put the soundtrack out as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, for sale, for people to enjoy it. Now the issue is we've got it in Spanish. So it's going to start playing in Spanish-speaking countries. But we have to get, uh, I guess they're called deliverables. You know, you have to get it captioned in each language. French, you know, uh a guy from holland that's a big fan of the thing that's like when is it coming out you know um so we have to get that done next and um in the meantime i'm trying to get my next picture off the ground yeah yeah well before we get to the next pictures i want to still talk about target okay now, um did you what kind of direction did you give them did you allow them some opportunity to improv or would they stick strictly to the script well I did have them stick strictly to the script. Uh, yeah, I did pretty much, except when I would hear a clunker in there and I would go, you know, is that working for you guys? And they would say yes or no. Um, and there were lines that, you know, one actor didn't want to say. There was a line he did not want to say. Um, it was Philip Stoddard. He, I had a line in there 
a complete non sequitur, by the way, meant to come out of nowhere, apropos of absolutely nothing, while he's seducing her, he says, babe, it's all China. Right in the middle of the wall, the Great Wall of China, it says by 2050, China will rule the world. And, and then he takes her up to bed and seduces her. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It, it's, it's almost like a Woody Allen moment, you know? Exactly, yeah. But I, I thought it was funny. Uh, yet the day of the shoot, he said, I really don't want to say that line. Hmm. And I said, why? And he said, well, I'm afraid it will engender anti-Asian. Yeah. And he had a point. You know, he had a point, and I listened to him. I think a good director listens to his actors. You know, you you know, you have to keep control, but you have to learn that sometimes you may not be right. And as it turned out, I think his idea was better than mine. Yeah. Well, you know what? I wanted to mention that because that's what you, you and I in the last interview talked about how everybody's so worried of saying anything that might be offensive. You care but you just went all out with this movie i mean you, you say so many different things that some people might take offense and you know what you really i mean you really can't worry about that much it's your art it's your vision there's going to be people that are going to complain about it, and those are the people that probably will never even bother to see anyway the people that like you the people that know you and they're going to love the movie and they're not going to be offended they know you're joking around like some of the things like you make a couple of references to homo which i thought was hilarious with the cop jj it's hilarious but some people might say oh my god he's anti-gay it's like no he's not anti-gay he's making a joke it's a comedy so i love well, the actually that actually did. you know that came from the actor when i was writing the script he's like you know the one thing that i cannot stand is when someone says are you gay yeah so I said, does that bother you? Yeah, it really bothers me. I go, okay, good. I'm going to put that in. <laughs> so I say, yeah. uh, what, what, uh, homo. He calls him yeah. a homo. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's the word. I hate it when people call me a homo. And, um, and, and because it bothered him so much, I exploited that. But for the purpose of humor, I mean, and, and it was, I thought the fight, scene yeah. was quite well staged to to accentuate it or bring it out and that's the purpose of it i mean it's like lenny bruce said if you keep saying if you keep saying it, it it means nothing they're just words it's what's the intention the intention is to make the audience laugh at what they are you know and and another motto of mine is be provocative or be forgotten if yes. you're not going to come out swinging, if you're not going to be a, the Muhammad Ali of what you're doing, then don't bother. You know, come out there and, you know, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Oh, yeah. Or don't do it. Yep. Or don't do it. Yep. You know, there's, there's just no reason to do it unless you've got a point of view and you're willing to risk your life and your reputation. Well, you know, it's funny that you said that because I, I have cerebral palsy and I used to do stand-up comedy. Yep. So, wow. so but the reason I bring that up was that um, I, used, I first of all, I love self-deprecating humor. I'm very confident. 
I know, and, and I, it, this does not bother me at all. So I make jokes about it on stage and people say, you can't make jokes about it. I said, why not? And I'm, ha I'm having fun with it. And they're like, if you want to be more popular, you have to be more generic. I said, I would rather have a group of diehard fans that come to see me all the time than a large audience going, what was that guy's name? Yeah, I, I think he was funny. What, what joke did he have? You know, I'd rather be remembered and liked by some people and hated by others then it's exactly what you just said. So I've had that motto with all the different things. And it's funny because that morphed into somebody saw me at a comedy show and said, oh, you'd be a great inspiration to my students. And he uh, works at a place called Abilities Beyond. And I speak to them every six or seven months. I go and they love me over there. They're like, oh my God, you're such an inspiration to me. Now I know I can do it too. I, don't ha I can overcome any obstacles and they really mean it. They're so happy to see me. So it's just that I never once thought like, can't make fun of this why it's like it's it's more it's just my sense of humor but i like that be provocative or just be forgotten and that's and that's exactly what good you're doing you, yeah good for you you've had you. it all, all your life yeah when i was born i was given the last rites three times they said i would never walk never talk and even the doctor said i have a lesion it basically takes up the whole left side of my brain he said that i can't believe you're not a vegetable i said what do you mean he goes um, I was the left side of my brain is almost completely dead. But what happened was the right, you know, for the most part, the left controls the right, right controls the left. It's probably a little bit more complicated than that, but in layman's terms, but the right side took over for the left right when I was born to overcompensate. So I'm able to walk, talk. I've, I've never let it get in the way of anything I've ever wanted to do. Good for you, mate. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good for you. That is just a what an inspiring, that's incredible. I appreciate that. Thank you. And here you have your own podcast. And yeah, I, I love this. And this is probably like, I've over the years I've done, I've been in bands in the 80s. I was in a metal band in the 80s. I've done stamp comedy. I wrote a book. I've done motivational speaking. And this is probably the most fun thing that I've done because I get to meet people like you, people I grew up watching and enjoying their movies and realizing how great they are in real life and you know have a chance to talk to you one-on-one -on -one. i am loving this what what instrument do you play i was a singer really yeah that is beautiful yep. i what you and i are friends on facebook i can send you pictures after the show just show you like me with the long hair in the 80s it was fun i had a great we used to play i live in connecticut we used to play all the rock clubs in Connecticut. It was fun. I, I definitely had a great time. And then what happened was I realized I was in my 20s and I said, you know what? I'm not making any money from playing bands, but I love music. So I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting, became a disc jockey for seven years. Wow. But then at that time, this was from 92 to 97. And in 97, that's when all these big stations like Infinity Broadcasting yeah, were yeah, buying up. Yeah, so they were buying out all these small radio stations and using um, their own people, simulcasting. So then I got laid off, laid off, laid off, and I started saying, I need to do, I need something to pay the bills. So I got real, quote, unquote, real jobs. But then I'm able to do all these different activities, like I mentioned, writing a book, stamp comedy, motivational speaking, this. So that pays the bills, but this is where I have the fun. That is so beautiful. That's remarkable. Good for you. Thank you. That's really something. I had no idea. Yeah. What's well, no funny? Idea. The funny thing about that is because I, I used to make jokes about cerebral palsy about myself, but I would hold the mic in my right hand. It's only the right side that's affected. The right hand, the right leg, and they're like, "We didn't even know you were handicapped because I was holding the mic in my right side." 
<laughs> so then, I, but it was great because when somebody told me that, I would, uh, I would uh, make a joke about that. I was like the Harry Houdini of handicaps, like handicap, <laughs> not handicap. Handy, it was funny. That's and then great. the funniest, the the funniest thing was people would come up to me drunk. Are you really handicapped? <laughs> and my friend would say, man, he's just messing with me. He's not handicapped. Oh, if you were handicapped, you'd be the funniest fucking person here. I'm, I said, oh, my God, they actually think I'm faking this. It was hilarious because nobody knew what I was. And that's but the reason I bring all this up was I love that because people kept on telling me, oh, you can't do this. You can't do it. Yes, I can. That's me. And that's what I like. I like. I think it's funny. If I think it's funny, I'm going to continue to do it. I'm not really worried about. There's going to be somebody out there that likes me. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make myself so generic to make everybody like me, where nobody even knows who I am. You know, there's a great quote by the famous uh, poet and essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, "The great man does what he cannot do." Mm -hmm. I like that. Yep. Well, let's get back to speaking of what you can do. <laughs> I loved this movie. So you you said you gave them some little leeway and you you listened to them, which is good. Now, a lot of people say, write what you know. Did, did you write this based on anybody that you've ever known in the past, people you might have met? Did this story come from some... some I interviewed... I, well, in the 80s, I, I, you know, fooled around a little bit with the lifestyle of you know, I was with some people that was just the culture of the 80s. It was kind of a mm -hmm. but then, you know, I got married and had children and I forgot all about it. So I had to interview some people to find out what it was like. And, um, you know, it's. Uh, an aberration of normalcy with regard to what is expected in a relationship. But everyone knows, anyone that's ever been in a relationship for more than five years knows that at five years, you kind of hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And people get restless and oftentimes they have affairs and that's really sort of boring to me. I mean, it's so uninteresting to watch the guy have an affair with a younger girl. And so I thought, what if it's a younger girl that has an affair with an older guy, you know, I mean, with a, with a younger guy? Yeah. Uh, and and I just try to turn it on its head. Um, so write what I know. Yes. But what I know is relationships and I've had many relationships. So I wrote from relationships that I knew and had experience with. And I try to listen really carefully when especially women speak so that I can pick up their syntax and their rhythm. And then it's just like being a musician. You just memorize the notes mm -hmm. and copy, you know. Um, so in a sense, I did write what I knew from the 80s, drew on my past, but then tried to make it current. Yeah. You did a great job. And we, we sort of went over it, but the secondary characters were just as good as the main characters. We mentioned <laughs> JJ the cop, Frankie, yeah. Frankie the Ranger. Also, oh yeah, Tony Rigatoni. That was, <laughs> he was hilarious. He was the insurance guy that came in after the burglary, which I'm not going to give away too much <laughs> in the movie. But it's just every character played a part in that movie, and 
they were used to their utmost capacity. It was great. And you even had references to Kelsey Grammer's bear in there. You had everything. <laughs> yeah, that's Kelsey's favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's made by that famous actor. What's his name? Kelsey. Kelsey. Yeah, Kelsey Fraser. Spelling. <laughs> no grammar i knew it had something to do with school yeah yeah. Uh, yeah kelsey donated several cases of beer uh of his beer uh, that he makes up there in upstate new york for the shoot and uh i don't drink myself but the guys after we were finished shooting they got to you know uh imbibe and they said it was quite good it's called faith american and he makes a pale ale and a regular beer and um, they said, you know, this stuff's really good. It's very refreshing. And uh, I'm sure he uses the highest quality ingredients. You know, everything Kelsey does, he does with taste, quality. He's got a, a standard of excellence, whether it's signing autographs or making a movie or making a TV show. He's got a, a standard of excellence that he adheres to. And, uh, you know, I admire him for that. Well, we talked about it off air, but I want to talk about it on the air because you mentioned that you might be working with Chris, uh, with a Kelsey Grammer, that you're writing something that would be of interest to him. What is that about? Yeah, my next film, I hope, is Devil's Night, which is also another term for Mischief Night. Yep. And it's sort of like Stand By Me meets Hannibal Lecter meets Halloween. <laughs> and uh, yeah the main character only speaks in Shakespearean verse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's crazy. It takes place in 1969. And um, this bizarre, ageless character, he's over 2,000 years old because he's the devil. And uh, they ask him, you know, why he speaks like this. And he goes, well, I'm 2,000 years old. I'm only going to use the best language available, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's kind of beautiful because the language is my favorite. You know, most of it's Shakespeare, but I do use Byron, Keats, Emily Dickinson as well. And I interweave it through the plot. So there's also, just like in Target, there's a lot of comedy involved as well as it being you know not terrifier too grotesque yeah. but grotesque enough and frightening enough and yet it has a very positive message at the end and i, I don't want to give too much away about it but yeah i'm trying to get kelsey to sign on to play the lead and I'm going after a few other people and it's all being set up now. I just did another pass on the script. So I'm hoping to get that into production as soon as possible. And I probably shouldn't say this in case he turns me down. I asked John to do the music. Wow. That would be a great collaboration. That would be, it would be great. And, and he's considering it. You know, he's like, you know, once you get everything lined up, let's talk about it and I'll consider it. And, and I said, look, that's enough for me. Like, that's a yes for me that you would even consider yeah. doing the music for my film is a yes, whether he does it or not, because uh, he enjoys it. He and his godson and his son, Cody, they like to make music together. So it kind of 
you know, coalesces with his own uh, artistic inclinations, I hope, I mean, I don't know if he will, but if I can pull it together, because now I'm moving up from the low budget status, I'm trying to, and this is still low budget, but I'm trying to get considerably more funding because you have to, to pay these guys. You can't get a Kelsey Grammer and ask him to work for nothing. You just can't do it. I mean, they just, they're too busy. So yeah. I, you know, I'm, um, I'm hoping to uh, break into the, the major leagues, so to speak, when it comes to financing, which is a whole new area of expertise that I need to uh, immerse myself in. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that horror sells. Yes, definitely. It's there the was... only genre that doesn't lose money. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Terrifier 2, these friends of mine, the, the same crew that I used to shoot my film, they shot that and it was a $300,000 uh, budget and it's made almost $16 million. Yeah. I, I'm, I interviewed Michael Levy. Did you work with him? No. Yeah, okay. I worked with him and I know he was the producer and assistant director on Terrifier 2. But well, I knew the guys in the crew, the cameraman, okay. sound, grips. I knew those guys because they're the ones, they're the same crew that I use. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know Michael. I, I I've heard his name. Uh, he was a producer. Yeah, producer and assistant director because he worked with uh, Damien Leone, who was the uh, director slash makeup F FX artist. So he, the two of those, them really put the movie together. And then Michael has a brother that the three of them put because they did the first Terrifier. Because you, um, I was introduced to him. It's, I love how this works. I interviewed Leslie Donaldson. Which I know you worked with on uh, the Diary. Leslie, of yep. oh my God! Yep. She, I've known she, Leslie since she was sixteen. Yep. Well, it's funny because she, in the middle of the, this is how it all started. I want, I love how this show works. Um, I love the movie Happy Birthday to Me. So I was showing my wife. I said, "You got to see this movie." Because she really wasn't into horror movies in the eighties. And I said, "You got to see this movie." The first scene, she goes, she put it on pause. She goes. I know her. I went to school with her. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I went to school with her in Canada. I said, what? So reached her on Facebook. We did the interview. She is such a great person. And she goes, first thing she said, we were talking about uh, you. We just talking about the diary of Anne Frank. She goes, oh my gosh, you got to get him on the show. I said, I would love to. I said, I was telling her I met you at the Coney Island um, Warriors reunion. I said, she goes, don't worry about it. And I don't know if she reached out to you, but I know I reached out to you on Facebook and that's how you and I, then we were talking about Terrifier 2 and she goes, you gotta meet this guy. He's great too. So through her, I have like two of my favorite interviews. <laughs> that's and wonderful. Yeah. Leslie's a great, she's a lovely child. I've known her since, I mean, she had to have a tutor on set. Uh, yeah. That's how young she was. And I played her lover. And um, one night, we were this is it. we were in manitoba very tough winters up there and uh i was drunk as hell and i <laughs> locked myself out of the place where we were staying so i had to climb up the side of the building don't ask me how i fucking did i if i was sober i never could have done i had to climb up and I'm knocking on her bedroom window in the middle of the night. And she's like, what the fuck? And she had to open. She's like, what are you doing? I'm hanging there. I'm like, let me in. That's funny. 
and her grandmother was sleeping with her in the bedroom. <laughs> and her grandmother's like, what the hell's going on here? Crazy she, man. she actually mentioned her grandmother. She said her grandmother used to go on all the interviews and she, I forgot what she said to Michael Douglas. And, but she said because of the Michael Douglas flirting with her grandmother, she got the role in that movie she did with him. She got to play her daughter. So they didn't want her for the daughter because she thought she looked, they thought she looked too old. And the grandmother was so funny. They're like, you know what? I, I, we like her. Let's keep her. So That's it's funny right. you mentioned the grandmother because she, she said she was used to ever go to every audition, everything, every, every interview. Yeah. She always had Granny around, and Granny yeah. couldn't stand me. Oh my! <laughs> she was my... A, a Scot. She was an old Scot. She, who needs to put a pair of pants on you? You walk around half naked. You do. I said I'm working out. Put some pants <laughs> on you. You're a disgrace. You are. Wow. She doesn't mince words, I see. Yeah, yeah. She, Granny did not like me one bit. I know you're after her. I know you're after my granddaughter. I said, I'm not. She's 16. What are you? You know, I was like 28 or something. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. You know what? Um, I want to go back to the, you're talking about the, the movie you're working on with Shakespeare. I was surprised by this, but because you, you said you've done a lot of Shakespeare and I saw an interview with you or read it somewhere that you said Shakespeare was very easy to memorize because it has a very uh, fluidity to it. And it's sort of, and the way, because people were saying, how can you ever learn that? How can you ever memorize that? Like, that's actually the easiest thing to memorize. I was surprised by yeah. that. It is, and I still have many of his monologues memorized to this day and could go off if I had time on a tangent and do them because they're, he was a genius, okay? Mm -hmm. There are about, a, 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 I would say, estimate about 100 literary geniuses um, that exist, have existed in the world, and he's at the top. Mm -hmm. Everybody learned from him. And imagine how many people have tried their hand at writing as you have with stand-up and as I have filmmaking and playwriting. Imagine being the greatest writer to ever live. Even Tolstoy tipped his hat. And one of the reasons that he's so brilliant is you cannot add or subtract a single word out of any of his pieces or it ruins the rhythm because most of it is written in what's called iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. which is five beats and five stresses per line. You know, um, now is the winter of our discontent. Mm -hmm. And that rhythm sort of, it's your heartbeat. So he sort of writes from the soul and the heart. And not to mention the fact that he was a brilliant philosopher. He was a great poet probably the greatest poet to ever live and a great storyteller and his characters like Falstaff, Iago, Anthony and Cleopatra, um, you know, just to mention a few are, you know, everyone sort of knows who Falstaff is. And here we are 600 years later, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they're making opera. There's a whole town in England, Stratford, the whole, it would just be another little hamlet, a little nowhere bohunk town in, in england but stratford it all thrives on shakespeare every store is a shakespeare bar or you buy shakespeare sweatshirts or yeah, a shakespeare restaurant 
and they do his plays there. And it's all because of him. One man. I even went to the house where he was born. The bed is like, I mean, it's the smallest bed. you've. People must have been really tiny. Yeah. I saw the bed where he was born, where his mother gave birth to him, and the house where he grew up, and the backyard where he played. They have British actors that stand around, and you call out scenes, and they do them. So you say, I want to see a scene from Taming of the Shrew with Kate and Sergio, and they just go right into it. And, you know, like buskers, they busk with Shakespeare. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really wonderful. Yeah, I'm a huge, I, we haven't talked much about my acting school and I'm running out of time again. Oh, uh, I was saying, that's, sorry to interrupt you. That's exactly what I was going to go into next. But you know what we got to do? We got to do a part three. I guess, I guess we're going to have to. Um, so TGW Acting Studio, uh, thomasgwaits.com. You can find TGW Acting Studio online. I start all my students off with Shakespeare, even if they've never acted before in their life. So you can imagine you give them a difficult speech, like Hamlet's speech to the players. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounce it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as leaf the town crier spoke my lines. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hands thus, but use all gently. For in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Now, that's taken me 50 years to be able to do that, by the way, but still, I did it when I was 21, and I can still do it at 68. But I start them all with that degree of difficulty. And at first they're perplexed and baffled. And they're like, man, I just want to be an actor. Little do they know that if they can crack that code, then they certainly can do a law and order where they're like, the body's over here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know, unfortunately, I know you do have to go soon, but we have to have you back because I still haven't talked about your acting school. We really didn't get into your music we talked about how you do music for the movie but i want to talk more about you know when you open my the band yeah. the push-ups and all that and can we talk about one final thing because i'm i wanted sure. to talk about this last time and you had to go and it's a play that you directed entitled killer midget <laughs> yes i directed killer midgets by john dapolito who is a very talented playwright and uh just have the guts to come up with a title like Killer Midgets. It's a wonderful play. I love it. And what it is, is it's these two guys that live in a room above a grocery store and they've given up on life. They won't go outside. It's too dangerous. You know, people are getting killed and with all the gun, you know, mass gun shootings, it really is rather uh, uh, prescient. Um, so it's these two guys, they never go out. They, there's a hole in the floor where they sneak down into the grocery store and steal a box of cereal. And that's what they live on. And the whole set is just newspapers. Because what they do is they sneak out down the hall and they grab the neighbor's newspaper. And th the whole day they just sit around reading the newspaper, talking about the news very existential conversations about how, you know, 
the world is destroying itself. Mankind is, is killing the planet and each other in the process. So at the end of the first act, a note is slipped under the door. And it says, hey, you prick, stop stealing my fucking newspaper or I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> and they oh. get highly indignant, you know. Uh, how dare you so the, the next scene these three midgets with guns kick the door in tie them up and for the whole second act they torture them and kill them <laughs> did, did you have any uh flack on that from people trying to protest saying you can't say that you're making fun of midgets or you're yeah we did we we couldn't we all we only got it done as a reading we couldn't do it, which is really a shame because it's a brilliant play and John's a very talented playwright. Uh, Michael Imperioli produced a, a play of his called Baptism by Fire, which is also very good. Um, and then I tried to get this off the ground, but the producer looked at me and he said, I, I can't do it. You know, in this day and age for me to, he was a big Hollywood, he was a big Broadway producer. He said, I can't we've got to change the title we've got to change the story i'm like the guy's not going to change it but it's the same thing with cerebral palsy you know um, yeah it's, it's it's the same thing with any impediment or any <clears throat> you know uh deficiency of any kind people are afraid to talk about it they're afraid to make fun of it because they're going to get sued now i'm not trying to detract from certainly the me too movement because i know women yeah. Okay. That have been victims of people that misuse their power and it really fucked up these women, like mm -hmm. mentally. Yeah. For life because they were essentially raped. And, you know, I have firsthand experience with that and I'm, I'm not advocating anything, even, in fact, you know, I love women. I, I even think I'm a feminist, to tell you the truth. My, my oldest sister uh, teaches feminist studies at a college. I believe in women. And I love women. And I don't, just like I was talking about blacks and, yeah. um, you know, any minority that's been prejudiced against. But uh, so to make fun of something is one thing. But at the same time, we must learn from our mistakes as a society with the way we treat one another. You know, if we just all stuck to the golden rule, we wouldn't have a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it's stated in the Bible. Yeah. And if you did that, I think we'd all get along a lot better. But, um, you know, I do have to go, Rich, because I have to teach tonight and I have to get ready for class. But uh, I guess we'll have to do a part three, mate. We're going to have to. Because we didn't even get into the playwright years. We didn't get into your acting school. We didn't get into right. most of your music. Um, we did get into your movie music. But I want to talk more about your band. So we're going to do that. Thomas, it's always great to have you on the show. And once again, all my viewers watching out there, buy Target. You will not be disappointed. It's funny. It's, it's a roller coaster ride. It's funny. It's got some serious moments. Everyone in there plays a part to the best to their best of their abilities so i highly recommend target amazon prime right now it's only 9.99 i bought it for it's not that and and, and it's on apple and voodoo now okay. and and write a review for us you know in rotten tomatoes because uh 
we can't get critics. We've been trying to get, we've sent it to over 80 critics to review it and none of them will review it. I don't know why. I, I, I'm I gonna, really baffled. But if, if people do, it will really help us. Well, you can count on me. I'm definitely going to write a review and I encourage everyone watching this right now, write a review and definitely watch it. So Thomas, we're going to get in touch very soon. We're going to do a part three. I am loving this. Thank you very much once again for being on the show. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it, mate. You have a great day, lad. You as well. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. All right, bye. That wraps up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to actor, director, playwright, and acting teacher, Thomas G. Waits, for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule to be a guest on my show. Not once, not twice, but hopefully a third time very soon. Another huge thanks goes out to editor extraordinaire John Bristol of Elmwood Productions for always doing a superb job editing this show each and every week and making it available to all. I am also extremely grateful to Joseph Timothy Quirk and Rob Bull for all of their hard work and dedication in all they do to make my show available on several connected radio stations as well as Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Audible, and iHeartRadio. Thank you both very much. Lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. 